Hello, welcome once again to the Will Preach for Food podcast. I'm Doug, pastor at Faith Lutheran Church, based out of Shelton, Washington, a congregation of the ELCA. You can learn more about faith at our website, www.faithshelton.org. This podcast is being recorded for the second Sunday in Lent, March 5th, 2023. I'm preaching through the Book of Romans this spring. By Grace Through Faith is my series title, and today is part two, looking at Romans 3 and 4. Here, Paul articulates his proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are justified by grace through faith apart from works of the law. To this day, this is a radical and liberating message, one that, because it sounds too good to be true, most folks, including well-meaning Christians, attempt to misuse God's law or limit God's grace. And so, like Martin Luther did 500 years ago, it's up to Lutherans today to, to call for reformation. Um, to, to stand up to works righteousness and legalism, to submit to the Word of God alone, and to let God be God. So we begin, as always, by reading the Bible, listening to what it says, then trying to figure out what it means and what it means for us today. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We'll begin reading from verse 19 through the end of the chapter. And I'll be reading from the NRSV translation. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human will be justified before him by deeds prescribed by the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and attested by, and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God, through the faith of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood effective through faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to demonstrate at the present time his own righteousness so that he is righteous and he justifies the one who has the faith of Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. Through what kind of law? That of works? No, rather through the law of faith. For we hold and maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, and God will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then overthrow the law through this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of, the, of God. Amen. Sisters and brothers in Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go back and take a closer look at this passage. As we talked about last week, Paul had spent the first couple chapters of Romans 1 and 2 making the argument that we're all in the same boat, that the law of God exposes our sinful nature It's a magnifying mirror that reveals every blemish and wrinkle. 
Nevertheless, it is God's kindness, not God's wrath, that informs and motivates God's response to our sin. So now as we're reading here in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says it one more time. No human will be justified in God's sight by deeds prescribed by the law. Instead, it's through the law that comes knowledge of sin. Once again, saying the law of God is a mirror, and it's not a remedy. God's law is a mirror, not a remedy. No, Paul says in verse 21, the righteousness of God is made known outside the realms of do, the realm of do's and don'ts. And this is how it has always been. God has always dealt with humanity by grace through faith, Paul says, from Moses to Malachi, the law and the prophets. Verse 22 says that God's righteousness has been brought into clearer focus, dia pisteos Jesu Christu, literally, on account of because of the faith of Jesus Christ. There is no distinction, no us and them, Paul says in verse 23. All have sinned, he says, and all are justified freely as God's gift. God has redeemed us, Paul says, which is what happens when a slave is set free. And so he's making this parallel. We have been redeemed, set free from sin through Jesus Christ, just like God had redeemed Israel from their slavery in Egypt through Moses. Now we get to verse 25. And Paul says that God has revealed Jesus to be a hilasterion in the Greek. Hilasterion. This word choice has given translators and theologians fits for about 2,000 years. Literally, the hilasterion is actually a piece of furniture. It is the atonement cover. It's the ornate golden lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the holiest of holies in the wilderness tabernacle, later in the temple of Jerusalem. It, it, um, uh, it's where the, the original Ten Commandments were kept, the Ark of the Covenant. And it became known as the mercy seat because it was understood to be that that is where God promised to come and speak to the people. Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. And so the hilasterion is the mercy seat. And so Jesus is a mercy seat. That is, just as the existence of the mercy seat of old inspired faith and the faithfulness of God, now Paul says the cross of Jesus is the new mercy seat, the place where God promises to meet us and impart God's word. The cross proves, as it were, the righteousness and forbearance of God. After all, if God isn't given into wrath up till now and still does not give in to his wrath, even after we kill the anointed Christ of God, then when we see the mercy seat, the hilasterion, when we gaze upon Jesus, we can truly believe and trust God's grace. And God's word that says, if we are righteous in God's sight, then who are we to doubt it? No, we are right with God by grace through faith apart from works of the law. This is nothing to boast about, Paul says. This has nothing to do with our relative goodness or our religious background. God is the God of both Jew and Gentile and everyone in between. And God alone has the final say on who's in and who's out. And the chapter ends with, with Paul's question, does this mean that what we do doesn't matter? By no means, Paul says. It just means that we need to remember what the law is for that it's a mirror and not a remedy. 
Moving ahead to chapter 4, by the way, Paul expands on his assertion that God has always been about grace and faith. After all, God chose Abraham by grace. It was a gift, not a transaction. And Abraham trusted God long before uh, there were any Ten Commandments around. And then Sarah? Well, Sarah was barren at age 90 when God essentially resurrected her womb so that she could give birth to Isaac, a child of the promise. So just like they trusted God, so also we can trust God's righteousness in Christ Jesus. After all, Jesus died on account of because of our sins, but God raised him from the dead to assure us that we are justified, that we're held, we're saved, not because of our righteousness, but through the righteousness of God. It has always been grace through faith, apart from our good deeds. It's the Psalms of old that remind us again and again that Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, steadfast love. Yahweh does not deal with us according to our sins, but as a parent with a child, so God has compassion for us. It's always been grace through faith. Let's go back to that tricky word in verse 25, hilasterion. Theologians have wondered if Paul really meant the mercy seat or if he was referring to the sacrifice of atonement that took place annually at the mercy seat. And that's why most English Bibles today translate this word as sacrifice of atonement. And this has led to an understanding of the cross and the blood of Jesus as a payment for our sins, as satisfying the wrath of God, fulfilling a legal obligation. And this is known as the theory of substitutionary atonement. This is a problem. See, in Luther's day, 500 years ago, this line of reasoning was the basis for the, the practice in the Roman Catholic Church of indulgences, that the church would distribute the merit of Christ's sacrifice to people who showed their faith by giving more money to the church. And this line of reasoning is still around today. The gospel is being described in terms of Jesus' death as a transaction by which God's wrath is satisfied, that God is obeying the law and we can earn our salvation by subscribing to this theory about how God works. And so in many Christian circles, if I question this theory of substitutionary atonement, if I question this image of, of, of a bloodthirsty God, then I'm rejecting the gospel, denying the authority of scripture and going to hell. And this is simply not the case. So as Luther did back in his day, so we Lutherans are now called upon to reject the legalism and works righteousness of the theory of substitutionary atonement. Here are my three chief objections. The first one is that it isn't the plain reading of the Bible. The plain reading of the text is that Paul says that Jesus is the mercy seat, not the sacrifice of atonement that takes place at the mercy seat. And in case you were wondering, it's not the only time Jesus is compared to a piece of furniture. I refer you to one of the most beloved passages of the Bible, John 3.16. Let's read the whole thing. John 3.14-17. through 17. The Gospel of John according to chapter 3 beginning at verse 14. Jesus is speaking. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. As Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So we turn back to the Old Testament, to Numbers chapter 21, and we find a story about the Israelites in the wilderness. They're getting tired of eating manna every day, so they grumble, and then they go scavenging for, uh, for different food, more than what God provides for them. And they happen into a big snake pit, and a bunch of people start getting bitten and start dying. And others come running to Moses, and, and God tells Moses to give them a bronze snake on a tall pole so that anyone who gazes upon the bronze snake will be reminded of the mercy of God, and they will be healed. And in the same way, Jesus says in John chapter 3, God gave his son in order that the people might look upon Christ and the love of Christ and once again trust the trustworthiness of God and be healed, be saved. Jesus is like a bronze snake on a pole. Jesus is like a mercy seat, a sign, a symbol, a reminder of the faithfulness and mercy and presence of God. My second objection to the notion, to this whole notion of substitutionary atonement, is that is that God's wrath needs to be satisfied by bloodshed. After all, Paul takes great pains to explain that God has God's wrath very much under control, that God doesn't have anger issues or a wrath problem. What we understand from Paul is that God's wrath is always a function of God's grace. That is to say, God only gets mad because God loves us. For instance, how many of you have ever gotten mad at your children? Is that because you don't care about them? No, it's because you love them. And when they lie to you, when they break curfew, when they run out into the middle of a busy street, when you've told them a million times how dangerous that is, Well, we get angry because as a parent is with their children, so God is with us. So God's anger is a function of God's nature, of God's grace. Now, there are all sorts of really cool hymns and songs out there that talk about the blood of Jesus. And to the extent that they express God's great love for us, demonstrating that God would rather die for us than than, than for us to ever doubt God's love. And this image of the blood of Christ that is shed for me, it is rich and it's humbling and it is faith-inspiring. But when it moves to transactional language of satisfying the wrath of a bloodthirsty God, not helpful. And more importantly, not biblical. And my third objection to this language of transactional atonement is that it asserts somehow that God has to answer to a higher law. As though God says, well, gosh, I'd really like to forgive sins, but the law won't let me do that unless a price is paid. No, let's be clear. God is the law giver, and God is not subservient to any law. The law does not and cannot justify humanity, and the law does not and cannot justify God either. The righteousness of God is given and is a given. The righteousness of God has been revealed from beginning to end. God's nature, God's mercy, kindness, and forbearance. God doesn't need to be justified by any law, or by you, or by me, or by anybody else. 
No, we are justified by the grace of God the Father, through the faithfulness of God the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, apart from works of the law. This is nothing new. God has been providing for and protecting and forgiving and loving humanity and all of creation since the very beginning and will to the very end. This faithfulness and righteousness of God has been demonstrated and proved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that all who look to Jesus might be saved, that all who come to Jesus will arrive at God's mercy seat and find grace, kindness, and forgiveness. The theory of substitutionary atonement can be helpful to a point as one way to begin to grasp the great, God's great love for all of us, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, but all have now in Christ been saved, declared righteous, according to the steadfast love and mercy of God. But at the point at which this theory brings about doubt or fear of God's uncontrollable wrath or bloodlust, then we must set this theory aside and stick to the plain reading of Scripture and approach Christ as the mercy seat of God, to approach and to gaze upon Christ as the bronze snake in the wilderness, and gazing upon the goodness of God, we find healing and forgiveness and justification. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, Paul begins chapter 5. But why is life still so hard then? (laughs) Why am I still so often of two minds? Why is faith in God such a daily struggle? That's what we're going to look at next week. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I'm being encouraged and challenged as I prepare and preach this series on Romans. And I hope you are too as you listen and read Romans for yourself. I'd love to hear what God is saying to you in this text and what you think about it all. Meanwhile, to listen to more of this podcast or to learn more about faith, go to our website, www.faithshelton.org. While you're there, check out our Bible studies, prayer groups, ministries. You can like, subscribe, donate, sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe to this podcast on most podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify. Chaz and Nadia, thank you for your production work on this podcast every week. And all glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So God bless you and keep you. God's face shine on you and be gracious to you. God look upon you with favor and give you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.